0: You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives.
1: Welcome to FDNY Pro's podcast series. I'm Captain Sean Newman. Today's topic is intel for first responders. More specifically, FDNY's main intelligence product, Watchline. With me is Captain Chris Ward, the primary writer and managing editor. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Chris. So how many years of service do you have with FDNY?
2: I have 24 years, uh, 9 years as a firefighter and 15 years as a fire officer.
1: And where have you worked most of your career?
2: I started my career in Manhattan, lower Manhattan as a firefighter, and then uh, I was a fire officer in
1: Queens. And how long have you worked at the FDNY Center for Terrorism and Disaster Preparedness?
2: I've been at CTDP for coming up on 8 years now. And I started in the Intel branch, and uh, that's where I continue to work today.
1: Regarding fire service intelligence in general, why do we need it?
2: Well, it's a good question. Each consumer needs its own analytical products to support unique missions. And for our FDNY members, who will likely be at the scene first, it's best to have the proper information possible to assist them with decision-making. And that goes from firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, all the way up to command staff. We look at world events in many ways and the threat to New York City and how vulnerable we are to a particular attack method, what are the trends around the globe regarding which states will be targeted and so forth. We also work closely with exercise design at the CTDP, where the scenarios they choose are meant to evaluate interagency responses to the most likely potentially catastrophic terrorist incidents.
1: We all know that in the past three years or so the intensity of terrorism has increased and uh, there's been an acceleration of attacks. What trends are you seeing? I think I would start with uh, the active shooter.
2: Some of the recent examples would be the Orlando attack, Paris, Charlie Hebdo early in 2016. We had the um, Charleston church shooting, and there was one in the Munich McDonald's. Another recent thing we have is ramming events. One of the big ones was in Nice, France last summer during the Bastille Day celebration there. And then there was a similar one around the holidays in December in Berlin. We've seen many, many more of those in the past in both in the U.S. and Israel and other countries. Sort of related to these, another trend is edge weapon attacks, and those could be anything from hatchets, cleavers, knives, those types of things, machetes, even swords. There was one in Ohio State in December. A student there also used a ramming tactic.
1: Why do you think there's been an increase in active shooter attacks, edged weapons, and rammings, as opposed to, say, the more traditional attack methods such as explosives?
2: That's a good question. It's clearly sort of a directive being issued from some of the larger terrorist organizations such as Islamic State and Al Qaeda, who are having more difficulty with sort of the more spectacular events, so they're directing their followers to perform these types of simpler attacks. And they're having success at it. And on that note, one of the ones that we're watching along with these is the use of fire as a weapon. They've issued in their online English-speaking magazines specific directions on how to carry these things out, both in Inspire and in Islamic State's magazine. And we've seen that a number of times over the past few years.
1: So these magazines are much more than just propaganda, but uh, providing guidance Oh, absolutely. They, they gives
2: very even detailed instructions on how to carry these things out. Most recently, there's a concern about wildland fires. We saw some devastating fires in Chile recently, and they believe those were terrorist-driven, and those have been some of the specific instructions that have been given out on how to light forest fires. In addition to some of the sort of more tactical aspects of trends. Just the general rise of ISIS itself as a dominant jihadist group in the world within the past three years is certainly something that that we're watching. And almost on the same level, we're keeping track of homegrown violent extremists because some of the more successful attacks we've had, especially in this country, have come from HVEs. And last but certainly not least, I would say attacks and ambushes on responders. We've had some serious incidents. We've had law enforcement and firefighters have been killed in these types of attacks. And it's something that sort of wraps all the other things in. And it's something that we're greatly concerned
1: about. Of course, of course. Why are homegrown violent extremists so dangerous?
2: Well, they're very difficult to track. A lot of the way our counterterrorism is done is through communication, but when you have a homegrown violent extremist who might be acting on their own or in a very small group, and we certainly aren't able to infiltrate their communications, other than maybe social media.
1: So um, often we don't know about it until it's already happening. Would you say that these homegrown extremists lean to simpler attack methods because they don't have the training and the support from the group itself, they're not directly connected in?
2: Generally speaking, there, there is a class of homegrown extremists that would be uh, those that have traveled to places like Syria and Iraq and have gotten training. And counterterrorism is very concerned about those individuals because they do get the training. But by and large, the attacks that have occurred and some of the ones that have been infiltrated are the more simple ones. When we see more complex attacks being planned by homegrown extremists, a lot of times those are thwarted beforehand just for that very reason because they're going beyond, you know, maybe their scope of ability.
1: Now, I know you coined the term boomerang jihadist. Could you tell us what that means? That goes back to what I was talking about before with individuals who leave
2: their home country to go basically fight and train in... um, an area active in terrorism or insurgency, such as Syria, Iraq, maybe Somalia or Nigeria, and then returning, oftentimes they're directed by the leaders there to return to their home country and perform an attack rather than stay and fight. Again, this is considered one of the more dangerous threats because the training, financing, backing, and so forth, things like that that they'll have bringing back with them. Chris, what exactly is WatchLine? WatchLine is a weekly intelligence product that we put out from the Center for Terrorism and Disaster Preparedness. It's a one-page summary and analysis of what our intel unit sees as the most important trends and events happening within that scope of time. It's been in production for nine years now, and our uh, readership is just continuing to grow every week. We haven't missed a week, it comes out on Thursdays. It certainly has evolved over that time, but it hasn't changed in that it is geared towards firefighters, and more broadly, first responders, and we've stuck to the one-page format because we find that it has been very successful, and that's what people say they like about it.
1: Within the department, who gets WatchLine, and how do they get it?
2: WatchLine is emailed out to every fire station, EMS station, every chief officer, all the way up to the chief of department and the commissioner every Thursday. It's also published to Diamond Plate, which is the FDNY's internal training platform, and all the issues are archived there as
1: well. Besides Watchline's internal distribution, I know that it also goes outside the department. Can you give us an idea of who it goes to in other agencies and what your total readership may be?
2: Yes, that's true. Watchline began strictly as an FDNY distributed product. And over time, our readership has grown to across the country and in dozens of countries outside our own. Mostly local first responders, but also military, some private sector if they are part of the Homeland Security enterprise. It's um, distributed at FOUO, which is for official use only. So if someone requests to be put on the distribution list, it's helpful if they have an official email address. Otherwise, we just vet them on a case-by-case basis. So it's unclassified but for official use? Correct, and actually the whole thing is produced from open source material. How do you do your research? Well, hundreds of stories are considered for Watchline every week, and only six make the final cut as it's just a one-page product. The top story in counterterrorism for that week is also our top story. Though our readers may be well aware of the incident we're discussing as our top story, we try to provide them with concise summary for their needs, including
1: analysis. I can understand it's probably difficult at times to have a weekly because when news breaks right after you release the product, maybe on Friday or over the weekend, you'll have several days before you'll cover it again. So how does your research change and how do you adjust your strategy to news that might be approaching a week old? Well, that's a good point.
2: We're not about breaking stories Our product is analysis-driven, and sometimes it's actually a little helpful to have a story that's been out there for a few days because we're getting more information that we're able to analyze and just really weed through some of the noise and get to the more critical aspects of the incident in terms of analysis for our readers.
1: Besides the top story or the more obvious stories, what else do you look for to put in WatchLine?
2: Well, since FDNY members are our original audience and our primary audience, we do try to include local stories when they happen and when we might be able to add some analysis to them. We mix that with things happen that occur nationally or internationally that we feel our assessment will have value to our readers. We also, since our mission at the CTDP includes disaster preparedness, when natural disasters are occurring, or when we're preparing for natural disasters, we certainly will include those also. Below the fold, so to speak, sort of the bottom half of the document, oftentimes we'll do a deeper dive into analysis. Uh, Not something that's so much driven by an event that happened, but a trend that we're seeing, and we might want to just do some deeper analysis on that trend. And then we usually wrap it up with something a little bit more offbeat. We feel like the readers are By the time you get to the bottom of the page, you're a little bit beat up by some of this stuff. So we'll look at anything from technology, advancements, science, pop culture, you name it, and, and really try and give it some relevant assessment and bring those stories back to something that we can learn from. We've gotten a lot of good feedback on these stories. I think our readers appreciate
1: them. I think many of our listeners would be curious to know if Watchline is all original writing? Yes, all of our writing is original. If we use a direct quote,
2: then we will use quotation marks in that case, or anything that is closely paraphrased will get attribution, but all of the writing is our own, and it's culled from numerous sources.
1: To roll back to the general threat, would you say that New York City is still a top terrorist target?
2: Yes, I would agree with that, and I think that would be commonly seen in U.S. counterterrorism. We've had numerous thwarted attacks in recent years, including the Times Square bombing. The Boston Bombers were headed to New York City. We had the bombings in Chelsea and New Jersey. That was a New York City attack, and many others that have been thwarted over the years. The plots are just as relevant
1: as the attacks, right?
2: As noted counterterrorism expert, Georgetown University Professor Bruce Hoffman, has told us directly. You could learn as much from the plots as you can from the attacks.
1: So we have to look at those and count those among the threat. But you can't dismiss a, a plot if it doesn't actually occur. No,
2: absolutely not. And oftentimes they're infiltrated by the FBI. That doesn't mean that there wasn't a potential there for real harm.
1: What are some of Watchline's greatest successes?
2: Over nine years, that's a tough question. Um, I'd say maybe our consistency is part of our success. We get a constant stream of requests to receive the document, and also its relevancy to a wider audience. I think that proves out some of our success.
1: So its popularity is a good measure of how well you're doing your job.
2: I think so. I think it's it's. I feel good when <laughs> people continue to request a document. And, mostly because either it's been shown to them by a colleague or um, a colleague has discussed its usefulness to them. We receive requests every week, and they come from really all parts of the country and other parts of the world.
1: What is your direct outside distribution, give or take? Well, it's hard to
2: measure in a way because, you know, we have a direct distribution, but we also know that Many of those subscribers will forward the document to their people within their agency, which can number in the hundreds or the thousands. So we've estimated in the tens of thousands, possibly 50,000, maybe even more. Like I said, we're in dozens of countries.
1: I think you had mentioned another time that you'll get a formal request to disseminate the document to hundreds of members of that person's department, right?
2: That's true, and that's really kind of how we caught on to this, that other than people receiving it from somebody else, and then you track that down, but we've caught on to it that way with a specific issue or one of our other products, we'll get a request and out of a courtesy to us that they want to disseminate to their, almost their entire agency.
1: Besides email, where else can Watchline be found?
2: Well, Watchline is uh, loaded onto his in the Homeland Security Information Network weekly, NYSEC, New York State's Fusion Center, distributes the document to the 60 counties in New York State, along with a few other documents on uh, Friday, the day after they receive it from us.
1: And that those 60 fire service representatives across the state will then drive the document down to the other fire departments? Exactly, exactly. And that's just an example of how it becomes widely distributed. And it can touch the entire state without us having a direct link to those those end readers.
2: Yeah, that's true. And um, I think at this point it's recognized pretty widely as a leader in this kind of fire service intelligence.
1: Where has Watchline or even Intel branch at CTDP been ahead of the curve?
2: I'd say there's a number of times we've been ahead of the curve. Um, I think the big example right now would be fire and smoke as a weapon. I mean, we've been talking about this for years, really possibly beginning with Mumbai, the Mumbai attacks in 2008. We recognized just how fire was used in that incident where it seemed that that got a little hazy in the discussion of Mumbai in the years that followed and even in some of the ensuing training initiatives that occurred. They started leaving the fire aspect out of it and we've been on that and looking at, at fire and smoke as a weapon at least since then, and it, again, as I discussed earlier, it seems to be a trend that is worth watching. I talked about the safety of first responders before. I think one of the things that we were ahead of the curve on was recognizing that not just the secondary device, which has been discussed for many years, but the secondary attacks, and sometimes even you'll get an attack that is really just priming the secondary attack on the first responders that
1: arrive on scene. So we're actually the target, not the public. Exactly, or the more important target in many cases. Chris, what is next for Watchline?
2: Well, we don't want to change too much. You know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. So next year marks our 10-year anniversary of the document, so maybe we should just rethink our color scheme at that point.
1: Chris, I know we covered how Watchline gets some very positive feedback, but why is feedback so important? even if it's not so positive.
2: Well, that goes back to what I discussed earlier. You know, we want to make sure we're fulfilling our intelligence mission by giving our customers what they need. You know, intelligence is seen as a cycle, and an important part of that cycle is the feedback. And based on the feedback, you will possibly alter your scope, but it is very important.
1: Chris, that covers it. I really appreciate you taking the time and coming here to inform our listeners as to, a, to maybe a less obvious function of the FDNY, though it has become increasingly important.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to discuss our work. And if anybody would like to receive WatchLine, they can just email us at watchline at fdny.myc.gov.
1: This has been an FDNY Pro podcast. Thanks for listening.
0: FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. 24 hours a day seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment and education. Go to FDNYFoundation.org and help New York's Bravest save a life today.